Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Today's lecture is a part of our 10th annual Kosciuszko Chair Spring Symposium in honor of Lady Blanca Rosenstiel. This event is sponsored by the Kosciuszko Chair of Polish Studies and the Center for Intermarium Studies. This afternoon, we will be hearing from Dr. Marek Hodakiewicz. Dr. Hodakiewicz holds the Kosciuszko Chair in Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics and leads IWP's Center for Intermarium Studies. At IWP, he also serves as a professor of history and teaches courses on geography and strategy, contemporary politics and diplomacy, Russian politics and foreign policy, and mass murder prevention in failed and failing states. He's the author of Intermarium, The Land Between the Black and Baltic Seas, and numerous other books and articles. He holds a PhD from Columbia University and has previously taught the University of Virginia and Loyola Marymount University. Dr. Hodakiewicz, welcome, and thank you for being with us today. It's business as usual at IWP, belatedly. Um, we are now going to have our um, spring symposium in honor of Lady Blanca Rosenstein. I will continue the story. I left off last time when we met uh, with... Uh, the Armistice. This is a uh, more focused, more focused lecture, more detailed. Remember the great tragedy of Armistice in um, uh, November two, uh, 1918, the Allies, in particular David Lloyd George and like-minded liberals, foolishly agreed to a ceasefire. The Germans imagined very soon that they didn't lose the war. Uh, their armies were next to Paris on the one hand, and on the other hand, they were approaching St. Petersburg. They were poised to take Moscow. Uh, it was theirs for the taking, it needed be. And suddenly, the Germans explained to themselves, everything was over, Germany collapsed. Had we marched into Berlin, as General John Pershing advocated, everything would have been clear. The Germans would have known they lost. America's doctrine of the total annihilation of the enemy would have prevented World War II. Instead, nothing of the sort happened. A revolution broke out in Germany. There was a General collapse on the front, a ceasefire, an armistice. Within three months, there was a new narrative in Germany. It was not that the Allied, in particular the United States, 
defeated the Germans on the Western Front. Oh no, it was not that the Germany was on the verge of starvation and her allies were dropping off and surrendering. No, no. It was not that the army in the East was already afflicted by the Bolshevik germ spreading west from there. Oh, no, no, nothing of the sort. The new narrative in Germany was that the Jews and Freemasons stabbed Germany in the back. The Deutschstoßlegende, the legend of the stab in the back, was born because the liberals uh, of David Lloyd George and his ilk refused to take Berlin. The war, the shooting war, may have been over. The guns may have fallen uh, silent on the Western Front. It was not so in the East. In the East, the war continued. It continued as an attempt by the communists to spread their revolution to Western Europe and then worldwide. Today, I will talk about Bolshevik rule or supremacy in the lands of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, in general in the Intermarium, but in particular in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, focusing on what is contemporary Belarus and uh, the Republic of Lithuania. <clears throat> As usual, I have quotes at first. First, a neo-Marxist historian, Thomas Balkelis, wrote, the first precedent of the new Bolshevik borderland policy was set in Ukraine when in response to the Rada's decision of November 20th, 1917, the Bolsheviks outlawed the Rada by declaring their own Socialist Republic of Ukraine in Kharkiv on December 25th, 1917. Moreover, the new Bolshevik government of Ukraine pledged its allegiance to Soviet Russia and recognized its laws to be applicable to Ukraine. In January 1918, the Kharkiv Bolsheviks sent a Red Guard, the majority made up of the troops sent from Russia, to crush the Ukrainian national government. By defeating it, the Bolsheviks learned that this model of revolutionary takeover was highly successful. It helped to legitimize their rule by merging their class aspirations with those of the locals and the principle of national self-determination. Most importantly, this principle which was one of their major slogans in October revolution now became increasingly interpreted as the right to secession that could be exercised only by the local proletariat. This was a creative yet highly dogmatic ideological invention of the Bolsheviks to justify their conquests since very few non-Russian peripheries a significant number of workers. And this is what Richard Pipes has to say about this particular period. <clears throat> First and foremost, 
they had to uproot all that remained of the old regime, czarist as well as bourgeois democratic, the organs of self-government, the political parties and their press, the armed forces, the judiciary system, and the institution of private property. This purely destructive part of the revolution carried out in fulfillment of Marx's injunction of 1871, not to take over, but to smash the old order was formalized by decrees, but it was accomplished mainly by spontaneous anarchism, which the February revolution had unleashed and the Bolsheviks had done their utmost to inflame. Contemporaries saw in this destructive work only mindless nihilism, but for the new rulers, it was clearing the ground before the construction of the new political and social order to get underway. And here is a quote from Tadas Ivanowskas, otherwise known as uh, Tadeusz Ivanowski, a Polish nobleman who decided to become a Lithuanian uh, patriot. Except for Poles and Russians, all others don't know their nationality. People don't want to hear about Lithuania and see in it the greatest danger for themselves, except the Jews who view the Tariba quite favorably, all others refuse to acknowledge it. Now, this is from the Novogrudek area about the Polesian and the Polesian um, uh, situation. Here is a quote from Viktor Tomir Drimer, future diplomat of Poland, pre-war Poland, and uh, an intelligence officer at this time in 1918-1919. The Polishian population didn't have any national consciousness. They used to say that they are locals and that they speak a local tongue, which was Belarusian. It was different with uh, the islands, the archipelago of uh, petty nobility. The, these poor, oppressed, and destroyed people of Belarusian origin feel a unity with Poland, which they consider their own fatherland, even though they almost didn't know the Polish language. They didn't want to join with the peasants because they were nobility in their homes, just like in Volunian Polisia, in uh, their chests of drawers, somewhere at the bottom, they preserved their patents of nobility, which were shown only to the, to the uh, most faithful, faithful friends because the Moscovites used to confiscate them. Petting nobility was neither wealthier nor more educated than an average Polishian. Nonetheless, it maintained a feeling of unity with Poland and some form of uh, personal pride and dignity. Per Anders Rudling, a leftist Swedish historian, and this to say, 
For most people in Belarus, nationality had little to do with their daily lives until it was violently thrust upon them. Nationality was for them less a vehicle for liberation than a tool for dominance. The majority of the Belarusian peasantry was indifferent to and resisted that form of control. The new nationalized identities offered to them by the nationalists and the Soviets had little to do with, but often complicated their lives. They dodged this form of control that was imposed upon them, resisting for as long as they could the identities projected upon them by the ethnographers, specialists, nationalist intellectuals, Soviet central planners, and German, Polish, and Lithuanian strategists. A, um, another neo-Marxist scholar, Andrew Sloin, wrote that in Belarusia, this meant that the revolutionary mantle largely passed to the, to the Jewish working class. Jews, moreover, concentrated in those sectors of production, the sewing, shoemaking, leather, leather, leather working, wood, food, and tobacco producing industries that emerged as primary bastions of political radicalism following the 1917 uh, revolutions. Revolution and civil war transformed this mass of artisanal labor into a force for the radical transformation of Jewish political and social life from below. In doing so, these actors transformed the cities and shtetl of uh, Belarusia into centers of Jewish experimentation while simultaneously playing a critical role in establishing institutions of Bolshevik rule and Soviet power throughout the region. And finally, here is Baruch Guravitz, another leftist scholar. In April, May, 1919, Jewish red units named uh, Borochov units were founded, founded in Minsk and participated in the city defense. The other local units of the Red Army defending the city were composed of 70% Poalesion members, 20% Bundists, <clears throat> and 10% communists. Now, Borohov, Ber Borohov, was a leader of Poalesion, workers of Zion. By that time, by uh, April, May 1919, both Poalesion or leftist Zionists and the Bundists in Minsk and in Belarus in general, tactically subordinated themselves to the Bolsheviks. They started working together as of more or less January 1919. There were obviously examples of cooperation earlier, but by this time, Jewish leftists um, many Jewish leftists were firmly in the Bolshevik camp. So first allow me to tell you about the tail end of the German occupation and the red beginnings. So before we describe the red offensive against the West at the end of 1918 and at the beginning of 1919, uh, we shall briefly discuss the origins of the communist power and about national movements in 
Belarusian lands. Let us go back about two years to 1917. In the Western fringes or in the Western part of white Ruthenia, the Bolshevik orientation initially hardly existed because those lands were under German occupation. However, there operated secret individual supporters of Bolshevism. They, they were very much undercover. A few of them activated themselves as members of robber bands. However, it seems that the bandits spontaneously, instinctually, uh, and as a grassroots impulse, began to gravitate to Bolshevism as a mandate for anarchy. There existed no organized nationalist Belarusian movement in the west of the Intermarium, even though Germany's Oberos military command endeavored to invent it. The Germans were able to find a few romantic peasant maniacs and members of the intelligentsia, including uh, among the clergy who identified with uh, Belarusian nationality. Those people set up their quarters in Vilno. Their idea was to restore the Grand Duchy of Lithuania as a union between Belarusians and Lithuanians. To an extent, this approach tallied with the position of the Polish conservative countrymen, Krajowcy, most of whom stemmed from landed nobility. In 1917, it resulted in cooperation between the, the two sides, the Krajowcy um, landowners and uh, Belarusian activists. Meanwhile, in the eastern part of White Ruthenia, the situation was quite different. Russia's February Revolution allowed various political and national options to emerge from the underground or from let's just say, an official existence. Thus, the Bolshevik party in Minsk appeared in the spring of 1917. It rejected de facto the formula of the peasant worker government, and it began to form itself on the base of soldiers. They stemmed from a variety of ethnic groups of this multinational uh, empire, Russian Empire. There was uh, a whole lot of them because uh, because um, uh, Belarus was the immediate front area 
and all sorts of units were stationed there. As a result of this, there were very few ethnic Belarusians among the Bolsheviks. And the situation persisted until at least 1919. The soldiers, most of them Russian peasants, not only supported Lenin's putsch in October 1917, but they also gave the Bolsheviks their electoral victory in White Ruthenia in democratic elections to the Constituent Assembly in November 1917. Military Bolsheviks were headed by a de facto autonomous Obispalcom, the executive of the Western Front and region. Now, this was led by a Russified Armenian, Alexandr Miasnikans, who called himself Miasnikov. He usurped the right to serve as the ultimate local authority concerning Belarusian issues. He was assisted by the fact that for a while, he also served as the, com as the deputy commander of all armed forces of Bolshevik Russia, a standard bearer or ensign, Nikolai Krylenko. Miasnikov was his deputy and he parlayed this position into tightening his grip on things Belarusian. Taking advantage of his, uh, uh, of his position, gradually Miasnikov subordinated himself to the Bolshevik Politburo first in St. Petersburg, Petrograd, and then in Moscow. This fluid and anarchical situation in the entire Tsarist Empire assisted in conserving this status quo, even in 1918. Under such conditions, we see that the creation of potentially competing structures in Minsk, which represented all radicals among the local population, from the very beginning encountered serious problems. Therefore, the representatives of um, Belarusian revolutionaries who adhere to populist and peasantist tendencies sought and found support directly in St. Petersburg. Their protectors with Lenin's tacit agreement were uh, the coalition partners of the Bolsheviks uh, from the party of uh, uh, so social revolutionists, left social revolutionists. Thus anointed Belarusian populists and social democrats of the party called Hromada returned to Minsk where they created their own Belarusian national Council 
in our People's Council in um, December 1917. Formally, at this point, uh, the BRM supported a federation with Soviet Russia and recognized the supremacy of Lenin's regime in St. Petersburg. However, apparently in Minsk, there was dual power. On the one hand, we had the Soviet military Bolsheviks who were mostly foreign. And on the other hand, there were native socialists and populists. The situation between them and among them was permanently dynamic. Both political centers were leftist, revolutionary, but the Belarusian uh, media was also nationalist and less radical than the Bolshevik one. Aside from that, the native center of power or a nucleus of power enjoyed a broader ideological base. Thanks to Belarusian Hromada, the uh, Belarusian popular or Belarusian National Council, the Rada, cooperated at that moment very closely with similar, ideologically similar revolutionary Jewish parties, the Vereinigte and Paalesion. Let us stress that the greatest Jewish bloc in White Ruthenia, including in Minsk, was the electoral bloc Chal Israel. This was a coalition of religious Orthodox and center-right Zionists. Was, and it was the uh, second greatest power in the Minsk Soviet from the local elections in, J in July 1917. They were des decisively anti-Bolshevik. They opposed, in fact, all forces of the revolution and their attitude to Belarusian nationalist aspirations oscillated between a certain neutral sympathy and skeptical ambivalence. There were also certain links of the BRN, the Belarusian National Council, with the Polish community. This concerns both the Polish military and the civilians, including the countrymen, the Krajowcy, conservative landed nobility. The Poles naturally prefer the BRN over the Bolsheviks. Therefore, they treated Belarusian nationalists in a rather patronizing manner. They didn't see a threat in Belarusian nationalism. They saw it, they saw a threat elsewhere. Polish organizations, like other organizations, 
were infiltrated and and uh, subverted from within by the Bolsheviks, or at least this is what the Bolsheviks attempted to do. The, the leading player in this game was a Polish-Jewish communist, Wacław Jan Pański, who called himself Solski. His cell attempted to demoralize Polish soldiers by radicalizing, radicalizing them to uh, sway them towards Bolshevism. Now, this operation was undertaken at the orders of uh, Moscow, but we can assume that weak central supervision meant that Pinsky and his comrades went on their own and improvised a lot. I think for immediate purposes, the contacts of Pinsky and, the comra uh, and his comrades with military bol uh, Bolsheviks of uh, Miasnikovs were much more important. Miasnikov was the dominant power in Minsk. In light of all of this, it is um, obvious that the dual power of the BRN and the Bolshevik party existed chiefly in a theoretical sense. The military communists wielded a decisive advantage as far as uh, power struggle was concerned. Only the will of the central government in Moscow reined them in, forcing them to tolerate the existing native structures. In practice, however, this did not protect sufficiently leftist Belarusian nationalists from the communist repressions and arrests. Nonetheless, in theory, it looked like Belarusian structures were tolerated by the Bolsheviks. The end of this apparent compromise came when, under the blows of the German offensives, offensive, the uh, Bolshevik power escaped from Minsk to Smolensk in uh, February 1918. Taking advantage of this situation, the city was captured by the Polish army under General Józef Dowbor-Muśnicki. On the political battlefield, by the force of inertia, there remained the Rada, the council. Even though initially no one really paid attention to it, it is at that moment that the Rada proclaimed itself the government of Belarus, which was to become an independent uh, people's republic. The Rada's leaders resolved to negotiate with the Germans, who at first ignored them, focusing on uh, the Polish military. Having neutralized the Poles, German forces, which took over power in Minsk, immediately 
chased away the BRM and liquidated all overt centers of that government. Belarusian national revolutionaries became marginalized once again. But very soon, a new false hope dawned, a chance for Belarusian nationalism. From March 1918, the Germans half officially agreed for the BNR to recommence its operations. Meanwhile, as I've mentioned, the Rada desperately broke with uh, Russia and proclaimed independence of the Belarusian People's Republic. The occupiers ignored the proclamation and the BRN continued as a government only apparently. The German military was concerned primarily about their help for economic exploitation of their country. However, the Oberost in Vilna commenced to sponsor the creation of an alternative Rada for Belarus. It consisted mostly of conservative elements, including Catholic priests and Orthodox priests. Soon, the Vilna Rada merged with the Minsk Rada. During the following months, the Germans and their trusted collaborators, just like in Ukraine, undertook the purge of um, uh, a purge of um, revolutionary elements from this newly constituted joint Vilnominskrana. Most leftists simply resigned in process. Then uh, more conservatives were co-opted to the Rada. Finally, it was headed by a Polish landed nobleman, Roman Skirmund of Pozecze in the Pinsk area. He was a Krajowiec, a countryman, or a patriot of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, understood in a historical sense Great historian Viktor Sukhanitsky correctly considers him for a uh, political persona similar to the regents in Warsaw and Hetman Skoropadsky in Kiev. The difference was that the rulers of the Oberost made fewer promises and granted fewer concessions to Skirmund and his confederates than they uh, uh, did to their counterparts in the Kingdom of Poland and the Ukrainian state. 
Skirmund and his collaborators served as a cover for um, uh, further economic exploitation of the conquered lands. After November 1918, the German military commenced retreat. They left the BNR and its states to be despoiled by the Bolsheviks. At this time, the armed forces of the Belarusian People's Republic functioned in an embryonal state. They hardly existed at all. They were not ready to defend their country. Their organization commenced only in October 1918. This is very similar to the situation in Ukraine where Skoropatsky was essentially barred, any Ukrainian authorities were barred till the last second from preparing to defend themselves against the Bolsheviks. The Germans simply forbade them and stalled for the longest time any attempts by Belarusians and Ukrainians to create their own armed forces. At any event, the nominal head of the Belarusian army was a former Tsarist general, um, Cyprian Kondratowicz. Cyprian Kondratowicz. His deputy was a Polish colonel, Fabian Kobordo. The latter was also in charge of the Minsk self-defense of the Poles, which was created by General Dr. Alexander Bernatowicz. The very same people also constituted the backbone, the officer backbone of the Army of White Ruthenia, the Belarusian People's Republic. At the same time, they remained in full cooperation with similar Polish structures of self-defense in Vilno under General Władysław Wejtko. At the end of October, the nomination of General Wejtko and Colonel Cordobo were confirmed by the Chief of Staff of the, the uh, Polish Army, which was being created at that moment, General Darius Jordan Rozwadowski in Warsaw. Later, Józef Piłsudski approved when he became uh, the Chief of State and the Commander-in-Chief of the Polish Army but only later. At that point, Piłsudski was still interned in Germany in a fortress. The commanders of self-defense cooperated very closely with the Polish Council of Minskland, so Rada Polska Ziemi Mińskiej. That in turn was headed by landed nobility uh, representatives Jerzy Osmołowski of um, uh, the Pinsk area, and Czesław Krupski from the Stopce area. They animated cultural, social, and political life of the Poles in the Minsk region. Together with a Polish military men, the uh, Polish politicians 
attempted also to make an agreement with other national groups in the Belarusian territories. Unfortunately, the negotiations, all Polish negotiations, negotiations with the Russians, Belarusians, Jews, and others to establish a, a, a coordinated command of all national militias and self-defense forces in Russia in White Ruthenia failed. They failed. First, the negotiations were sabotaged by the Germans. Second, the interests of those groups were too contradictory for this maneuver to work out. For the Poles, the priority was to hold anarchy and revolution. Others thought that either the revolution is needed or that only the restoration of Samodzierzhavy or Tsarism or some other authoritarian form of a Russian state would normalize the situation. All, all uh, prepared their armed forces separately. Some of the endeavors to create the so-called red militia by Russian social democrats and the Jewish boom, for instance, in Vilna, uh, were noted for the first time at the end of 1917. At that point, the Bundes uh, counted on the Soviets. Remember, the Soviets were not yet uni uh, uniformly controlled by the Bolsheviks. They were controlled by various revolutionary parties, which uh, the Bolsheviks and others referred to as democracy. Zionists of various hue, in particular revolutionary Zionists, who were also setting up their own self-defense forces, were counting on national autonomy in the framework of the emerging nation states or in the framework of um, post-revolutionary Russian Federation that they, ex that they expected to, um, to surface anytime soon. The Peace of Brest pushed all such efforts again into the underground. However, a year uh, a year after the first efforts to set up red militias and something like eight months or nine months after the peace of Brest Litovsk, in November 1918, these paramilitary structures once again commenced to emerge in many uh, uh, borderland town. Shtetl. This was taking place under more or less unhappy eye of the retreating Germans. German soldiers were or continued to be increasingly degenerate 
and the power was vested in uh, um, soldier Soviets. Soldatnavet. Meanwhile, the Belarusian military needed time to organize, but nobody gave him such luxury. The same concerned the Lithuanian military, which initially was headed by the same General Kondratovich who evacuated himself from Minsk. Polish self-defense in the Minsk area was also too weak, primarily because the, Germ the Germans prevented the creation and coordination of the Polish military units with analogous Polish organizations in other borderland towns, including Vilno and Novogrudek, which still remained under the German occupation. All this did not escape the attention of Lenin and his comrades. Until July 1918, so long as the left SRs remained in the coalition with the Bolsheviks, the communists formally agreed to the fiction of functioning of separate authorities of Belarus as a virtual entity. This was in congruence with the letter of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. However, after the rebellion of the left SRs in Moscow in July, the official blessing of the Kremlin for the functioning of revolutionary Belarus Belarusians as a separate entity was no more except if they subordinated themselves fully to the Bolsheviks. But even earlier, Leninist declarations that sounded pro Belarusians were in fact empty. Their importance, their, their importance was in their propaganda value. That the communists allegedly supported self-determination of nations. In reality, the Bolsheviks from the very beginning supported underground work of communist cells in Belarus, which was inimical uh, to uh, the question of self-determination. So in reality, 
the Bolsheviks from the very beginning supported clandestine work of communist cells in Belarus, which were destructive to self-determination. There were three centers involved in this. Smolensk, then in Moscow, and lastly, St. Petersburg. There was even a degree of competition of these three uh, ordering centers. Each of them created separate Bolshevik structures in Belarus when the comrades were preparing to uh, spread the revolution west. In September 1918, to that end, the Bolsheviks created in Moscow the Central Bureau of Communist Organizations on the Occupied Lands, in the Occupied Lands. Its task was the coordination of clandestine work. And the fruit of this subversive offensive was to be the Sovietization of Finland, Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. The person in charge of the bureau was Stanisław Pestkowski, the deputy to Stalin in the Commissariat of Nationalities. Aside from this, the autonomous Obispo Komzap, uh, or the military Bolsheviks in Belarus used to dispatch its emissaries from Smolensk and maintained appropriate communication channels and uh, uh, party cells, underground party cells throughout Belarus. Then St. Petersburg joined the fray. Its operations was strictly of a police intelligence nature. St. Petersburg's Cheka, this was in the uh, fall of 1918, dispatched to Minsk comrade G.P. Bokli. He was in charge of all the secret police activities in the area. All those initiatives, to a large degree, to a large degree, independent from one another, prepared the ground for the Bolshevik victory. Additionally, uh, there were also Jewish comrades dispatched, all of them from the Jewish section of the Bolshevik party, the so-called Yevsektia, to dominate the Jewish community in Belarus. The effort was coordinated by an ex-Bundist and an ex-anarchist Shmuel Agurski, who was a tailor by profession, and who returned from the United States. He headed the Jewish Bureau, or the Jewish Commissariat, within the Commissariat of Nationalities in Moscow. However, very soon, in the middle of December 1918, he was dispatched to Minsk to 
mind the business of the so-called Jewish street. His main assistants was uh, uh, the, his main assistants were Zalman Haikin and Comrade Yosef Mandelsberg, both of them underlings of Augustki in the Jewish Bureau. Haikin stemmed from the Yev section. And immediately in December 1918, he created the Minsk uh, version of the organization. The Yev section was not popular on the local white Ruthenian Jewish street. And it was not popular at all with Jewish revolutionaries parties. The latter preferred to negotiate directly with the Bolsheviks instead of subordinating themselves to some secondary organization usurping uh, the right to speak on behalf of, of the Jews. Moreover, the Yevsekcia was also not popular among the majority of communists in Belarus. It only enjoyed the support of the Bolshevik leader Isaac Reingold. This particular communist counted on the Yevsekcia's Russificational potential, uh, potential, and he endeavored to centralize all of Belarusian communism within uh, the Russian Bolshevik party. He also did not exclude a creation of a Soviet Jewish Belarusian Republic. His main opposition came from the Belarusian national Bolshevik Dmitry Zhilunovich, Zmitir Zhilunovich in uh, Belarusian. He wanted a, a pan Belarusian Communist Party. Uh, another opponent of uh, Rheingold was the military Bolshevik Nyasnikov, who supported the continued existence of a territorial Bolshevik party in Belarus. Because of lack of unity among the Bolsheviks of white Ruthenia, there emerged a dialectical necessity of looking for support among non-Bolshevik leftists, including the Jewish ones. Initially, initially therefore, as Baruch uh, Gurevich shows, the Belarusian situation appeared different than in Ukraine, where the Bolsheviks refused cooperation with Jewish socialists. In white Ruthenia, the Communist Party, even in its military form, was open to or became open to cooperation with um, leftist Jewish parties. For example, in December 1919, the Bolsheviks entered in a uh, 
some kind of a cooperation with Bund in Minsk. The Bund, just like the Belarusian uh, avatar of Poale Sion, supported the Bolshevik takeover and the power of the Soviet, which at that point was controlled by the communists. At the same time, during a party congress in Minsk, Paale Sion encouraged to embrace the Bolshevik dictatorship of the proletariat, sang pans to the world revolution, and called on its called on its supporters to join the Red Army and promised to communize the Jewish um, uh, working masses throughout the world. This was an open declaration by one of their leaders, Nahum Nir Rafalkas, in, negotiation, in negotiations, in, in his negotiations with the, the Jewish commissariat in Moscow. Accordingly, two Poale Zionists were Tupala Zionists were uh, co-opted to the Jewish commissariat, Zvi Friedland and Rabinovich. To an extent, the support of the Bolsheviks directly for Jewish socialists in White Ruthenia reflected the fact that, as we have already mentioned, three main inter-Bolshevik factions could not agree and needed outside help. Furthermore, there weren't too many great ideological and programmatic differences between the Bolsheviks and uh, Jewish socialist orientations. Partly the apparent positive communist attitude towards uh, Jewish revolutionaries uh, stemmed from pragmatism. The Jewish, situ the Jewish population constituted 47% of all inhabitants of Belarusian towns and cities. But this pragmatism, despite a similar demographical structure of its cities, was quite absent in Ukraine. Therefore, we claim that the difference the difference of the uh, the differences in the uh, Belarusian situation had to be dictated not so much uh, by the question by the population questions, but uh, by the dialectics of the Bolshevik tactics. Simultaneously, negotiating with. Jewish revolutionaries, the followers of Lenin were preparing their own structures and they were undermining 
they're related, ideologically related, red competition. In December 1918, the Minsk Bolsheviks allowed for the creation of the Kombund in Minsk. Its, create, its creators, its founders were Red Army men pointing out to some kind of at least minimal informal um, connection to Miasnikov and his military Bolshevik option. Kombund was supposed to be a rod against the Bund because both structures were Marxist. They really did not differ too much from one another. This way, the communists seduce Jewish socialists of Belarus. Until, until in July 1919, until uh, in July 1919, they broke official relations with them, got rid of the boom and Poalesion as partners insufficiently important. Then they presented them with an ultimatum for individual members to join individually the Bolshevik party. The, the communists no longer needed other revolutionary parties as partners. By that time, Minsk uh, had been firmly under Bolshevik control from December. Nineteen eighteen. Following the collapse of the Second Reich in November nineteen eighteen, Lenin and his comrades commenced or recommenced the conquest, the, the recommenced a military conquest of um, Belarusian territories on December tenth having waited until the retreating Germans march out of town on their own, the Red Army entered Minsk. The members of the Belarusian National Council fled almost immediately to Vilno, Kovno, Grodno, and Baranovice. The victorious communists pushed westward endeavoring not to provoke the retreating Germans who were evacuating themselves west very gradually. Very self-assured on December 16, 1918, the communists proclaimed the creation of the Lithuanian Socialist Republic as Lithuanian Soviet Socialist 
Republic. In Minsk, its uh, executive, um, in Minsk, is, its executive was the military Soviet, Minvoyen Soviet, which was led by a Polish Jewish socialist, Stanisław Berenson. His main duty was to implement war communism in the city. At the end of December 1918, Jewish units reached Kovinszczyzna and Wilenszczyzna, so the Kovno and Vilno areas. In the next weeks, Lithuanian units turned incapable of fighting. Entire regiments fell apart as deserted home or escaped home and some of them even deserted to the enemy. For instance, in Alitus, where first, uh, 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 the, 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 when, when uh, first, um, the first Lithuanian regiment deserted its defensive position and then Elm Block surrendered to the Reds at the beginning of February 1919. Ironically, maybe paradoxically, only the resistance of the German Freikorps saved ethnic Lithuanian from a Bolshevik triumph. The Germans were fighting the Bolsheviks, not the Lithuanians. Despite all of this, the uh, uh, the Bolsheviks managed to capture Vilno because the Poles were, in, were unable to defend it because the Lithuanians didn't even try. Meanwhile, on January 1st, Lenin proclaimed the creation of the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic to replace the Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic. But by the end of January 1919, the communist military approached Pinsk. The lands of the old Commonwealth were flooded, or so it seemed, by an unstoppable red wave. On 27th February 1919, Moscow officially crowned the streak of success proclaiming the creation of the Lithuanian Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, Litbiel. This entity combined the Belarusian Soviet uh, Socialist Republic and the Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic. The new entity, the new state was supposed to um, uh, contain a great portion of the first and second partition of the Commonwealth, all the way to the former Suwalki Gubernia and Podlasie in the West. Right before um, the Bolshevik offensive, on the eastern lands of White Ruthenia, at least in the cities, the communist orientation prepared itself to take power. Their secret structures or 
or, okay, let me backtrack. Right before the offensive on the Western portion of White Ruthenia, at least in the cities, the communist or orientation prepared itself to take power. Its secret structures were initially organized beginning in December 1918. This concerned both city Soviets and red militias. This occurred on the basis of an alliance between local revolutionary forces which stemmed from other than just the Bolshevik party, from other leftist parties. This concerned in particular left SRs, socialist revolutionaries, Palacion and Bund. In addition, local party cells emerged from the underground and welcomed the conquering uh, uh, Red Army and the Czechists. Here's how a neo-Marxist historian has described the revolution in northeastern borderlands right before the entry of the Red Army. One of the most model, not, notable features of social radicalization in Lithuania was there a socialist revolution started before the advancement of the Red Army into the country. It was not important on the, on the bayonets of red troops. Rather, it grew from the local civilian experience of German occupation, state collapse, and social disaster that engulfed the whole country in late 1918. Initially, the revolution had a clear anti-German character and was fueled by economic hardship. Very often, it was led by radicalized war veterans and former refugees. It occurred both in major cities and towns but also in the countryside where agricultural workers, landless peasants, and smallholders try to establish their self-government. Two of the most typical revolutionary activities were the creation of local Soviets or socialist committees and the red paramilitary bands that tried to take control of various localities. Interestingly, these structures started emerging simultaneously alongside parish or municipal committees and self-defense militias loyal to the Lithuanian government. The competition between the socialists and, on the other hand, the nationalists and clericals led to the disorder. Socialists agitated within parish committees, while the latter, often led by priests and the intelligentsia, refused to acknowledge Bolshevist, uh, Bolshevist committees. Often centrally appointed district representatives, Igaliotiniai, had to resign because local revolutionized bodies refused to acknowledge them. Also, there were cases where locally elected Soviets or revolutionary committees considered themselves superior to any central government. The social activism greatly intensified after the armistice of November, 19, um, November 11th, 1918 and the German revolution. Local Bolsheviks spearheaded spearheaded um, the social unrest, 
though their presence was more considerable in cities and towns than in villages. This is a description of the situation in ethnic Lithuania around Kaunas, ethnic Lithuania. The previous description completely disregards the activities of the Bolshevik Agentura, which uh, inspired violence and radicalized people. It's also worth noting that, well, uh, that whereas uh, uh, the rebellious rural population was almost completely Christian, the uh, town population was usually Jewish. In particular, in, in uh, medium-sized and small cities of the Intermarium. In each instance, it was a radical minority that dominate, dominated over everyone because of its dynamics of its uh, fanaticism, vigor. This reflected the character of the Soviets and red militias. They function first and foremost in towns and little, uh, in cities and little towns. And there, their activities were aimed not so much and not only against anti-communist Christians, but also against the Jewish community. This is how Andrew Sloin explains this. For the ranks of innumerable supporters from the Jewish streets of white Russia, the Bolshevik revolution was also a Jewish revolution and hence a struggle over Jewish culture and identity. Over the course of the civil war, the revolution attracted growing numbers of Jewish activists drawn from every walk of social life, but particularly from original groups on the fringes of traditional Jewish society. For these formerly marginal Jews, the revolution promised a reconstituted social order and the inauguration of the last great emancipatory struggle in history of European Jewry. From the standpoint of its most zealous opponents, the revolution promised not simply the political and legal equality of bourgeois Jewish emancipation, but rather a qualitative leap from the shackles of tradition from the realm of heathers, rabbi, uh, uh, rabbis, rabbis, and superstitious obscurantism into the kingdom of enlightened freedom. Of course, Sloan is wrong in a sense that we cannot talk about a reconstruction of Jewish life here, but only about the destruction of Jewish life within revolution and then uh, an attempted rec uh, uh, recreation of Jewish life in the name of extremist uh, ideas, which led the, uh, the masses to total enslavement by communism. The apocalypse was to fulfill itself so a bloody utopia could be created. However, 
it was not obvious to many radical Jews. They believed that they are carrying a torch of freedom for the oppressed. Further, they saw themselves as a, as a uh, vanguard of progress in their own nation. It was the Jewish nation that was the main aim of the revolution. Alongside the ubiquitous intellectuals at the forefront of the Jewish revolutionary project stood the Jewish artisans, the shoemakers, tailors, cabinet makers, watchmakers, and others, following the pattern of revolutionary and evolutionary social movements across Europe, revolutionary change at the grassroots level within the Jewish milieu was driven by artisans confronted by the onrush of industrial revolution. The Jewish revolution, moreover, arguably constituted the clearest example in the long tumultuous history of Eastern European Jewry in each the popular classes, the unlettered, frequently illiterate, poor, marginal, and non-aristocratic attempted to rise up and overturn the dominant social order within the Jewish communities. This revolution from below was undoubtedly only made possible by the broader revolutionary processes that engulfed the region. Yet ample evidence points to the fact that many in the revolutionary rank and file enthusiastically undertook the project of social revolution and the remaking of the Jewish social order. In light of its plebeian nature, we should not be much surprised that this revolutionary product, uh, pro project received the condemnation of traditional elites within the Jewish community. The shtetl revolutionaries endeavor first and foremost to destroy their own community, their own society, their own nation. However, in the process, uh, by force of inertia and incongruence with uh, the ubiquitous logic and fury of the revolution, they also had to undertake uh, the work of destruction against all other communities, societies, and nations in the intermarium, including the Poles, and the Poles defended themselves from it. It is paradoxical that while defending themselves from the revolution, they were also defending uh, the Jewish community society and nation from the revolution. Wherever the Polish military, the Polish army reached, Jewish traditional elites were protected and so were the traditional structures of the Jewish society. Whenever the Poles recaptured any terrain from the Bolsheviks, immediately they created conditions actively or by the force of inertia to undertake a restoration of the status quo ante of everything and therefore also Jewish life squelched and crushed by the Reds. Generally, the Poles defended the right to private property and all other bases for civilization and therefore law and order. 
even if there were excesses, lamentable excesses by the Polish military, expropriations, robberies, rapes, beatings, and even in extremist, in extremist killings on the part of the Polish soldiers. This was never justified systemically or ideologically. In other words, the violence against Jews was an anomaly which failed to reflect either the ideal of the first old Commonwealth, which the Poles attempted to restore, or the system of liberal democracy of the second Polish Republic, which in fact had just emerged as a new emanation of Poland after 123 years of the nation's official non-existence. The fact that the Poles resisted revolution caused that the revolutionaries considered them as one of their main enemies. The Poles, after all, were the only ones in the intermarium, except for the white Russians, who conserved and defended the old order. Naturally, for them, it was the restoration of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and not the restoration of the Tsarist system as it was for the white Russians. Other participants in those struggles in the intermarium, not only the Bolsheviks, were socialists or social revolutionaries and at the same time folk nationalists. This concerned equally Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, and Belarusians. All of them attempted to carry out a social revolution along the national revolution, but not the Poles. They were interested in restoring the Commonwealth in a way, a reactionary restoration of the old beautiful paradigm. This also concerned the shtetl. Therefore, in the intermarium, it was against the Poles that the revolutionaries stood including the shtetl revolutionaries, both openly and in a, a conspiratorial struggle. But that is another story. Thank you very much. I would like to thank Dr. Hodakevich and all of you who tuned in. If you're interested in attending other upcoming events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Stay tuned for more lecture events from our 10th annual Kosciuszko Chair Spring Symposium.